Hey leader, David Burkus here, organizational psychologist and author of four best-selling books on helping leaders and teams do their best work ever. And in this episode, we're gonna talk about teams and we're gonna talk about how teams should make decisions. You know, I've always been struck by the sayings that we throw out there as common sense wisdom, right? Like we're supposed to believe that he who hesitates is lost, and we're also supposed to believe that we're supposed to look before we leap. The same thing applies to individuals and teams. We know from common sense and common cliches that two heads are better than one, but we also know things like a camel is a horse built by committee, which implies that two heads are not better than one. It'd be better off if just one person made the decision, made the design. When we look at the research on how decisions are made and where they are made best, what does that say? Well, it's about as confusing as all of these different cliches that contradict each other. Because the research suggests that while decisions are almost always better made by teams, there are also certain derailers, squelchers of creativity, squelchers of ideas, and yes, internal politics that affect whether or not that decision is made well. And so in this video, we're gonna talk about the four stages you could take your team through to make sure that you get more of the brilliance that happens from having multiple brains on the problem and less of the internal politics, self-censoring and squelching of ideas that makes for poor team decisions. We're gonna talk about four stages you should take your team through every time you need to make a decision. And you should take your team through them every time you make a decision because two heads are better than one. Let's get started. Now, the first thing you need to do when you're meeting with your team to make a decision is to find the real problem. And the reason I say find the real problem is that so often on teams, in organizations, large and small, in nonprofit, for-profit, in government, we assume we know what the problem is. And when we finally bring people in to help us make the decision, we jump right to the brainstorming, right to the coming up with possible solutions, or we jump right to making the decision as if we haven't even explored those possible solutions. But we actually have to take a couple steps back because so many times in organizations, again, large or small, regardless of, of industry or sector, we make a decision based on what we think the problem is only to find when we implement that the problem was actually a little bit more deeply rooted in the system, or the problem was actually something else that wasn't on our horizon. So the first step we need to do when we get everybody together and tap into their collective wisdom is we need to find the real problem. Now there's a couple structured techniques that you can do for this. There's things like the fishbone diagram that famously starts with the problem is like the head of a fish and uses a outward, almost Christmas tree-like or fishbone-like fish diagram to go back to the roots of the problem. Or you could use things like the Toyota Five Whys method where you talk about the problem and you keep asking why until you have found the root of the problem. It takes about five whys to do it. That's why we call it the Five Whys method. My favorite technique is actually to go beyond the team and have a initial problem-finding meeting where we ask everyone who is affected by the issue to come in and talk together about the problems that they're seeing, the consequences of those problems, the limitations, the constraints, everything. We wanna get everything out on the table from as many people who are seeing the issue as possible so that we can arrive at what is the upstream problem, what is the core problem that we're actually trying to solve for. The first step is always to find the problem because if not, you're gonna waste a lot of time in these further steps solving the wrong problem. So we start with finding the problem. 
Now, the next step is to analyze the data. And when I say analyze the data, what I mean here is not just let's look at a bunch of different spreadsheets. What I mean is that now, having found the root problem, we want to know as much as we can about that problem. We know the cause of it, but what are the downstream effects? How much is it costing us as a team or the whole organization? How many people are going to be affected by the way that we solve this? And we also want to know what are our constraints. Now, I know what you're thinking, right? Because we haven't even gotten into the part where we generate a bunch of different solutions. Solutions, but it turns out that we are better served if we take a minute to decide ahead of time what are our constraints and what does the, the good solution look like based on those constraints. And we need to analyze the data to do that. Now, again, it might not just be numbers. It might be the collective wisdom that we tapped into when we were asking a bunch of different people about the root of the problem because now we have a bigger scale picture of it. It might be things we know about the organization and the limitations that we're going to have to implementation. Data here doesn't just mean stuff that can be quantified. It means qualifiable things too. It means all of the things that are going to be affected by whatever solution we attempt to implement. And most importantly, it means how are we going to judge a good solution now that we understand those constraints, barriers to implementation, et cetera. If we don't analyze the data, generating a bunch of different solutions is useless. Creativity actually enjoys the constraints. We don't want to think outside the box all the time. We want to know what the box is so that when it comes time to picking all of those outside the box ideas, we can find the one that has the best chance of getting inside the box and actually getting done. And that's why we, even before we generate ideas, we analyze the data. Now, the third step is to generate those ideas, generate possible solutions. You could call this brainstorming or you could use any other ideation technique such as mind mapping, such as nominal group technique, such as the scamper technique for looking at all possible ways we could modify existing programs. There are a million different ideation tools out there and it doesn't actually matter which one you use so much as it matters that you make sure that while you're using it, everyone's voice is being heard. This is the part of the process where teams break down the most. And there's a good amount of research about this, that whenever you jump into a brainstorming session, whenever you jump into an ideation session, often you generate less ideas than if you had all five people on your team, let's say, go out individually and generate individual ideas and then combine them all. And the primary reason for this is self-censorship. The primary reason for this is that people who think, hey, they think of an idea in their head, and then they realize, mm, I'm too embarrassed to say it, or it's too similar to somebody else's idea, things like that, and they self-censor. Or you run into issues where the over-talkers, the um, really extroverted people, the narcissistic people, and by the way, I don't mean that all extroverted and over-talker people are also narcissistic. I mean three different categories of people that are problem people when it comes to generating ideas. Because we wanna make sure that every voice is heard, that no one feels like they have to self-censor, and we wanna draw as many possible solutions out of everyone on the team as we can. So we wanna suspend judgment in this moment, just in this moment, we wanna suspend judgment and we wanna do everything we can to create psychological safety so that everybody brings their whole selves, their whole ideas and their whole brilliance to this step, generate possible solutions. Now the fourth and final step is to select the idea, but in doing so, we want to select for commitment, not consensus. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, consensus is an interesting thing. We think that if we wanna have a happy team, a team where everybody gets along, a team with a good culture, everybody is going to have consensus. Everybody's going to get along. There's not gonna be any friction. The truth is in almost every creative team you ever research or ever talk to, 
there is friction. There is disagreement about the best way forward. And in that friction is brilliance. And so when we're making decisions as a team, the same rule applies. There is a time, it was the last step, where we want to suspend judgment and get everybody's ideas out there. But as we're talking about the viability of all of these different possible solutions, there will be conflict. Your role as a leader is to make sure that conflict stays task-focused and not degrade into individual conflict. Your other role as a leader is to realize that if you truly are chasing consensus, it's possible people are self-censoring. Especially as the meeting goes on for longer, people are going to want to champion one idea that seems like it has a little bit of momentum, either because their thinking is getting lazy or because they just want to get out of the room and be done with this meeting, people are going to put a lot of weight behind some of those earlier stated ideas and you might get a false consensus. The other thing that can happen, to be honest with you, is if there's an early front runner and everybody supports it and there's total consensus, that's a pretty strong indication that maybe in the previous step we actually didn't look at the totality of the problem. We actually didn't research all the answers. If all of us agree, then one of us is probably missing something or is self-censoring. So consensus is probably not gonna happen. What you do wanna select for is commitment, meaning I may not believe that this is the best idea, but I can live with it and I can support it and I can be committed to that plan. Looking for commitment instead of consensus. Make sure that you've selected ideas that there is disagreement about, which means the totality of the ideas, but ideas that everybody will put their energy behind. It means that some people recognize that, yeah, their idea didn't get selected, but they don't feel guilty about that because they know ahead of time that the goal wasn't to arrive at an idea everyone was happy about, but to arrive at an idea that everyone's energetic about. I mean, the reality is whether you're selecting for consensus or commitment, once you start implementing the solution, you're going to find some stuff you didn't anticipate. You're going to find some new information that changes your idea of what the problem is, or you're going to find a barrier to that implementation that you didn't count on. And what you want to be able to do is to go back to that wealth of ideas that were generated and the people who gave you their full commitment, even though they think they might have had a little bit better idea, and be able to say, now's the time, let's actually incorporate some of your ideas as well because you turned out to be right in this area. And I'm so glad that we didn't force a false consensus on everybody and then arrive clueless because everybody believed, or at least stated that they believed, that this was the best option. Solutions are never final. Decision-making, problem-solving, creativity, it's always a constant iterative process. You are going to make pivots as you implement and as you learn new things. But if you follow this method, if you find the real problem, you analyze the data, you generate solutions, and then you select for commitment, what you'll find is that you're left better off making those pivots, making those adjustments, and going back and doing the process over again. If you're just randomly trying to solve for problems you assume are the real problem, and you're trying to come up with solutions that everybody agrees are the best ones because nobody actually explored the totality of the problem, you are going to be much worse off when that inevitable pivot comes. But if you go through this process, and if you make sure that everyone feels their ideas are heard and everyone feels energetic behind the idea, even when they disagree, you'll be better off to make that pivot and you'll be better off to make the next decision as well. And overall, your team will begin to make some of the best decisions it's ever made and have some of the biggest wins they've ever had. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you liked it, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And while you're there, leave a rating and review because it helps share these messages with many, many people. And if you really liked it and you want to go deeper, then check out the amazing resources we have for you at davidberkuscom slash resources. Guaranteed there's something in there that'll help you or your team do your best work ever.